This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Mark Epstein. Mark Epstein is a psychiatrist in private practice and a contributing editor to Tricycle, the Buddhist Review. He has been a student of Buddhist meditation for the past 25 years. Mark Epstein is the author of Thoughts Without a Thinker, Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart, and his latest book, The Trauma of Everyday Life. Which sounds true, Mark has created an audio program called What the Buddha Felt. A Buddhist psychiatrist points the way to uncommon happiness, a program in which he uncovers a quiet revolution occurring in the West today, the merging of modern psychotherapy and ancient Buddhist meditation techniques to help us face even the most challenging emotional obstacles. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Mark and I spoke about the paradox of how his immersion in meditation and the Buddhist teachings of no-self have actually given rise to more confidence in his subjective sense of being and the uniqueness of individual expression. We also talked about key insights from the British psychoanalyst Donald Winnicott's work, including the idea of being good enough and the importance of the early holding environment. We talked about the Buddha's early trauma and what it meant for his life and teaching. And finally, we considered what we could learn from the Buddha as a realist. Here's my conversation with Mark Epstein. To begin with, Mark, I just want to say that I'm so happy to have this chance to talk with you and to have you as a guest on Insights at the Edge. You write and speak about some of the ideas that I care the most about and that I'm the most passionate about. So to have this chance to have a conversation with you is a treat for me. So thank you. You're very, very welcome. Okay, so let's get right at it. In thinking about your books and the program that you made with Sounds True on what the Buddha felt, one of the things that occurred to me is that woven throughout all of your writing and teaching, it seems to me, and I'm curious what you think about this, that there is a central question that you keep coming back to again and again. And the way I would state that question is, what is the self? What is the self? And first of all, I'd be curious to know if you agree that that's a central question that weaves itself through your work. Um, I think it's. I think it comes very close to what I might say is a central question that preoccupies my work. I think it's a little more personal than 
what you're saying. You're being very nice and discreet in framing it in terms of what is the self. I think it, for me, it's it's always been much more uh, what is this self, you know, where who who am I? Uh, I think that that what I've what I keep finding myself doing in my writing anyway is using myself as uh, my primary case study. Uh, I think because I was always reluctant to write too much about my patients um, because I didn't want to be listening with a third ear while they were talking, trying to steal what was happening for my writing. So I always used myself uh, primarily. But I think that's also because it's a mystery, you know, and uh, I'm still trying to figure myself out. Well, let's get right to it then in terms of what is yourself, if not the self. I'd be curious to know your latest and greatest experience, viewpoint, framework for understanding the self, yourself, however you want to talk about that. Well, I think I think I'm getting more relaxed about the whole question so that instead of feeling like I like I have to have an answer, I'm more comfortable in the not knowing. Um so I, you know, one of the things I've always loved about Buddhism is its teaching of anatta, which is sometimes translated as no self or non-self or no soul. Um but my experience of Buddhist practice is uh, is and always has been that there's been a kind of replenishment uh, of myself through the practice. That it my my sense of uh, who I am uh, emotionally and spiritually and so on uh, is has been deepened. Uh, by my meditation practice and by my exposure to Buddhism. So um, I actually feel like I've gained a self, whatever that might mean, that I was coming much more from a place of emptiness, you know, a kind of psychological emptiness, a a place of paucity, a place of um, uh, confusion, and um, that now I just feel clearer. So this paradox is what I want you to help me try to understand, if you can. So when you reflect on, is there anything in you that is continuous or anything deathless in you that you could experience throughout your life, where does that reflection take you? Well, I think, you know, for, for people who have too much exposure to Buddhist thought, they sometimes start to question the whole notion of self too much, you know, as if they don't really have a sense of something continuous in them. Um, We all have a sense of something continuous in us, you know, unless we're totally psychotic. Um, And that sense of continuity, I I wrote a book once called Going on Being, uh, a phrase that I took from a famous British psychoanalyst named Donald Winnicott, uh, who talked about how important it is to have that sense of continuity, that feeling of something that goes on being. You know, that's how we know that who we were when we were young and who we are now that we're whatever age we are, that we're the same person. There's some almost invisible sense of the self or of a soul that, uh, of course, we, we, uh, we all have that. My friend Robert Thurman 
he always tells a good story about uh, uh, talking to his first teacher, who was a Mongolian lama in New Jersey, who said to him, you, you know, in talking about the Buddhist doctrine of no self, uh, like, of course you have a self, you, you know, we all have a self, you, you know, uh, but um, uh, yourself is real, he said, but uh, your problem is that you think that uh, yourself is really real, and it's that sense of really real, it's giving it too much meaning that I think the um, the whole Buddhist approach is it trying to carve away. But um, a lot of people try to take it too far, and then they uh, they feel kind of guilty if they uh, if they still have a sense, uh, you know, a secret sense that they might have a soul. Now, one of the things that's really curious to me is to try to understand human uniqueness in the midst mm-hmm. of teachings on no self. What's that thing in people? That's that sort of unique thing that you know you'll miss when they're not around or when they're dead, it's like no one else will have that thing that that person has, that tone of voice or smell or sense of humor or something like that. How do you understand that within the Buddhist teachings on no-self? Well, you know, the Buddhist teachings on no-self are really uh, about grasping. They're really about clinging or craving, which uh, the Buddha articulated as the source of dukkha, the source of unsatisfactoriness, the source of what we sometimes translate as suffering. And uh, he did that in, when he uh, elucidated the Four Noble Truths. And you know, the second noble truth is that the source of this dukkha, of this unsatisfactoriness, is clinging or craving or grasping. So the, the teaching of no-self was, was meant to be a way of helping us let go a way of helping us release a kind of instinctive tendency that we have to make the self or anything else, you, you know, more, to give it more uh, ultimate reality than it might actually have. But that doesn't mean that it has no reality. I think it's, it's very important to understand that one of the, one of the primary ways of understanding uh, the Buddhist approach to no self is to see the self as primarily relational. That the the tendency to make it a fixed thing, you, you know, that we have to protect, takes us out of a relational self and makes us feel as if there's some like atom, uh, some uh, object, you, you know, that's inside of us that has to be protected, like in a fortress or something. And that sense of protection, of building walls around ourselves, that's what the Buddha was talking about when he talked about grasping or clinging or craving. So when we release that, we release ourselves into relationality. We realize that as people, we are inherently uh, inherently related to other people, starting from when we were infants, and we couldn't survive without our parents. Now... Within the framework of your work as a psychotherapist, I mean, I know you wrote a book Mm -hmm. called Psychotherapy Without the Self. How does the teachings of Buddhism about no-self, the way you're describing them, mesh for you with the psychotherapeutic frameworks in which you've been trained? How have you been able to make sense of that? Well, coming at it from the Buddhist side, uh, in order to understand what the 
teachings of no self really are, you first have to find the self as it actually appears in your experience. So you can't just leapfrog into no self. You you have to uh, admit or acknowledge or, or express uh, where your own personal grasping or clinging or craving, where where that is, you, you know. Uh, and it's only by acknowledging the deepest, most intimate feelings of selfhood that you have that you then have a chance of releasing into uh, what the Buddhists understand as no self. So psychotherapy is a wonderful theater for that. It's a wonderful forum for that because uh, people, if they feel safe enough, you know, will actually confide w- uh, what those deepest feelings of self are. And that experience of talking about um, that which we care most deeply about allows for a, a, a kind of release that um, that we don't really expect. You know, the Buddha understood that that there was a release that was hiding behind the fear of acknowledging uh, truth. But um, uh, most people, when they come to psychotherapy, aren't really expecting that kind of release. But it's there waiting. And if the therapist is attuned to that, then I think he or she can make that a living possibility. I read that one of the ways you work with clients is to see them as, quote-unquote, already free. And I wonder if you can explain that. Yeah. Well, that that came from Ramdas, um, not not originally from me. It, it came when I was paying paying Ramdas, who was an old teacher of mine, a teacher of mine when I was young. He wasn't that old at that point. Um, but I was visiting him, you know, I forget, 10 or 20 years after I had last seen him. And he had had a stroke and was recovering from the stroke. And he was sort of amused by me because he knew me when I was young. And I had become a, you know, a psychiatrist who had written about Buddhism. And he was giving me a little bit of a hard time. And he was like, oh, so you're a, you're a Buddhist shrink now, are you? You know. And then he looked at me kind of seriously and he said, do you see them meaning do I see my patients, do you see them as already free? And um, I didn't quite know what he meant at first, and then I I, I let it kind of percolate uh, into me, and I I thought I realized what he was talking about, that from the uh, spiritual point of view, you know, people are uh, lost in their ignorance, um, that and they're um, they don't feel free, you know they feel stuck uh, but if the therapist understands that the suffering that people are locking themselves into is um, uh, self self made a lot of the time that that beneath that grasping that clinging that dukkha uh, is a being who at uh, his or her deepest place is already free then uh, it doesn't have to be depressing, you know, to work with people who are suffering. It can, there's a sense of impending liberation uh, that's there with everyone. And I think Ram Dass was uh, tapping into that when he was talking to me, and um, uh, I felt temporarily free in the midst of that conversation. Now, it's interesting to me the way you're zeroing in on this clinging quality that we have in our life. And I'm curious, when you find yourself 
clinging in any kind of situation or even just internally as you're working with yourself. Oh, yeah. that's a place of clinging. How do you respond to that? Um, in myself, how do I respond to it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm hopeless when I'm clinging. I'm just, you know, I'm just a mess. And uh, uh, angry and sad and frustrated and anxious and... Uh, um, and then there's, uh, you, you know, I do my best to um, uh, try to find why I care so much, you know, and to uh, uh, zero in if I have the time and the space and the opportunity to to zero in on that feeling of self that is uh, holding on so tightly to whatever it is that's uh, uh, offending me, you know. Um, and, uh, that, that kind of secondary effort in the, in the back of my mind while I'm busy being a mess, uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes is a little bit helpful. I'm curious if you could take us through an example, since you seem willing here to talk about your own experience in this kind of very transparent way, an example of a time, you know, in the last couple of years, whatever, you're just like, wow, I was really stuck in some kind of self-clinging state and how you were able to work with yourself even through the difficulties just a specific example um, what what comes to mind most um, most clearly is uh, actually in my um, in my office when, when I'm uh, uh, working as a therapist when uh, someone comes um, you know, unexpectedly uh, upset or angry with me. Uh, and that happens periodically in therapy, sometimes because I make a mistake and sometimes because people uh, people's sensitivities are so acute that they, uh, um, they read uh, some kind of meaning into uh, a gesture or a word or a phrase or, a, you know, a way that I've responded to them. And... Um, uh, on occasion, someone will be very upset with me, and uh, and I will feel, uh, you know, like immediately, uh, like I did nothing wrong, like what's wrong with you, um, and want to push them away. But because it's my therapy life and not my personal life, you, you know, I'm, I think I'm much more careful in my therapy life not to let my own um, uh, needs uh, interfere, so I have to in that environment. I I have to very clearly put my immediate reactions aside, and um, uh, if I don't do that, uh, then the treatment is is really lost, you know. Um, and I I tend to be. Uh, I try to be very transparent in my work as a therapist. I don't keep myself uh, aloof, you know. But this is one occasion where uh, I have to be very careful to actually put my personal reactions aside right at the beginning. And my meditation training has been very useful in my ability to do that so that I, so I really get out of the way. Um, rather than responding as if the whatever the attack is that's coming from the other side, as if uh, there people are actually attacking me personally. Okay, so then you get out of the way during the therapy session. 
afterwards, do you, if you take this example, then are you hanging out and thinking, God, you know, I'm so this person, what the hell's wrong with them? Blah, blah, blah. I mean, how then do you move out and shift out of that state? Well, that, that, um, uh, that action of getting myself out of the way in the moment usually allows for a, um, a deeper kind of uh, communication with the person. So by the end of the session, I'm, it's usually gone. Um, so there's a good, there's good teaching in that for me personally, um, because there's usually not too much of a hangover from a, uh, um, from an encounter like that. You know, it's interesting, Mark, in asking you about, you know, where in your life might you notice this clinging to self. And, you know, you brought up when someone is coming at you with criticism. And at one point, I hosted a 25-part series, something like that, called The Self-Acceptance Project. And it was all about how difficult it is for people, even people who have spent a long time meditating, to work with really severe self-criticism when it comes up and how people can find themselves really getting lost in self-loathing of all kinds. And I'm curious, as someone who I'm sure has worked so much with people in the therapy office who are challenged by a lack of self-acceptance, what you've been able to come up with that's helpful for people who find that that's a pattern that they suffer from. Um, I usually, uh, I usually talk in some way about a paper of, of Winnicott that I loved, uh, when I was, uh, studying to become a psychiatrist and that I've come back to many times over the years in, in which he talks about, um, I think there are 15 ways or some, some number of ways that mothers, uh, hate their babies. Uh, and it's a it's a totally funny it's like a you know it's a brilliantly um, uh, humorous and, and yet deeply serious uh, paper that he wrote and he he details all you know all these tiny little things that go on between uh, he's talking about mothers it could be any kind of parent between mothers and their infants you know just how uh, how difficult it is and how annoying it is. And yet he says the amazing thing about a good enough mother is that she doesn't hold any of this against the baby, you know. Uh, she manages to find a way of making it humorous to herself. And then he talks about the, the nursery rhyme, uh, uh, rock-a-bye baby on the treetop, when the bow breaks, the cradle will rock. Uh, when the bow breaks, you, you know, the cradle will fall, down will come baby, cradle and all. And how in that nursery rhyme is the mother's aggression against the baby, but it's taken, you know, it's made into a, uh, into a song. So there's there's something in that about the lightning, you know, the bringing a, a humorous uh, take on those aspects of loathing, be they self-loathing or loathing for the person who one is closest to, uh, that we feel terrible about, that I think is all about self-acceptance. You, you know, when he phrases it in a way that all mothers are like this, you, you know, the the thing that people who suffer from self-loathing believe is that they're the worst. You know, they're they're worse than anyone. No one no one is as bad as them. 
but to have a sense that everyone actually, one way or another, is full of uh, these kinds of feelings, that, that, that humanizes it, enlightens it, and then lets us laugh at it. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned this British psychoanalyst, Winnicott, now twice in our conversation, and I know he's someone whose work you really respect and that you quote him a lot. And what I'd love to know is if you were to summarize for me some of the key ideas from his work that have really meant the most to you. I would love to know that. Um, well, I think there's a, there are probably two or three things. Um, uh, one I, I mentioned already about the good enough mother, that, that comes from Winnicott, and I, I think that we can expand that to a, a good enough meditator or a good enough therapist or a good enough lover or what you know whatever um, realm we want to put it in. Um, but the the big thing I think that before we go on, tell me what you mean yeah. about that because I want to be a good enough lover and a good enough meditator and a and a good enough uh, you know publisher, all those things. I'm not sure I am. So. Good enough interviewer. Yeah, I'd like to be a good enough interviewer. How do I make sure I'm good enough? What does that mean? Where's the line? <laughs> you just are. If you're doing your job, you just are. Just try your best. Is that what good enough means? I'm trying my best? That's good yeah. enough? Yeah, that's what good, that's what good enough means. That, that when uh, It's like Ram Dass saying that the person is, is already free, or, you know, or the Buddha saying that, that Buddha nature is there within. Or, or Winnicott saying that a, that a mother, by her very nature, if she lets herself, you know, if she gets out of her own way, that's really what he's talking about, you know. If she gets out of her own way, if her mind is not judging all the time, you know, trying to be perfect, that that drive for perfection actually inhibits us. And um, that when I wrote a book called Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart, that also was a phrase that was taken from Winnicott, you know, that when when we relax into ourselves, our natural states usually are good enough. So that that's a very important aspect, I think, of psychotherapy also, because people are nervous when they come to psychotherapy and they prepare all kinds of uh, explanations for what's going on with them. But the real fruit of uh, good psychotherapy is that people get to relax with the therapist and uh, and then two people can improvise together, and that's very nourishing. I love it. Okay, I think we're going to call this the good enough interview, but let's go on to the second <laughs> point about Winnicott that you wanted to bring forward. Uh, the second point about Winnicott is that um, uh, young children in the first few years of life have very rich and strong emotional experiences which their minds are not equipped to understand. Um, they don't have the cognitive capacity to put language on their feelings yet. So they're totally dependent on their caregivers, their parents, uh, or whoever is around them, to identify uh, and hold, in the larger sense of the word hold, to hold those feelings for them. Uh, and that, so the environment, the relational environment, is of supreme importance for the emotional development of the person. And that when there's not a good enough environment, then the child 
is left holding the bag, so to speak. They're left with emotional experiences that they're not equipped to understand and that feel overwhelming. Um, so that the the infant in those kinds of circumstances with a parent, say, who is lost in alcoholism or preoccupied with uh, their own ambition or depressed or just too busy, uh, the child in those circumstances uh, feels like they're being infinitely dropped, uh, to use one of Winnicott's phrases, or there's a sense of, you know, overwhelming emptiness. Um, and it, psychoanalysts, psychotherapists these days talk about that as a kind of trauma, uh, not a big trauma like happens with, you know, rape or war or um, sudden accidents, but a kind of littler trauma, a little T trauma, uh, a relational trauma where the interpersonal environment is inadequate. And um, that, that's been, you know, enormously useful. That way of conceptualizing things has been enormously useful for me, both personally and as a psychotherapist. And uh, in my attempts to interpret Buddhism in psychological language, because I think a lot of what happens in meditation, for instance, is that people come up against the the remnants of these early emotional experiences that were not adequately held by the parental environments, and the mind has to learn, has to find a way of holding those experiences and putting language on those experiences and understanding those experiences um, in adulthood. And that's a function of both uh, uh, therapy and meditation that I think has been relatively unexplored. Now, do you feel that you were raised in a good enough holding environment, or was it a relationally traumatic situation for you? Um, I think in my attempts to understand myself, I've rubbed up against my own uh, uh, imagined childhood traumas. Uh, The thing about this is that it's really a story that we're making up to explain things that otherwise we can't explain about ourselves. Um, so I think over the years I've uh, come up with plausible uh, plausible stories about how I felt deprived. I think in order to be able to do that, I must have been raised in a good enough uh, uh, environment because I've survived to tell the tale, you know. But I think even in those environments, you know, we all have our individual struggles, and I certainly have had my share. Well, hold on a second. So there's lots of people who have survived to tell the tale, but would be very convinced that the holding environment of their childhood was terrible, absolutely terrible. Yeah. And yet they've survived to tell the tale. Yeah. Well, the survival is very important. There are people who don't survive. Um, So the people who don't survive, you can say the holding environment was really not good enough. The the people who do survive, even if there were difficulties, uh, I think ultimately you have to give credit back to the parents for at least trying. And I think the Buddhist practices of... uh, uh, you, you know, uh, thanking your your mothers and uh, relating to uh, all beings as if they had been your mother are are speaking to um, are speaking to that. 
I guess I'm finding survival to be a pretty low bar here, you know, the response I'm having as I'm as I'm listening to you. I mean, maybe I'm clinging to my complaints, but yeah. No, I I think one should be glad for surviving and grateful, grateful for surviving. So many people don't. And that, you know, ultimately once you once you find the self, you know, uh uh, and that then you can move through whatever traumatic remnants of self you are able to find, and it, it's by it's by acknowledging them and accepting them, and then allowing yourself to go through them that you come to a place of uh, of being able to forgive and accept. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, you talked about both therapy and meditation as providing a holding environment or a healing space to work. And and so I think, you know, most listeners, I think, will have an intuitive sense of how therapy can provide that. I mean, there's another person sitting there helping me do this investigation. Help me understand how meditation can provide that kind of environment. Well, the thing about meditation, particularly mindfulness meditation, is that you're initially creating for yourself a replica of the holding environment that we've been talking about that exists naturally between parent and child because you're making what in psychotherapeutic language is called a therapeutic split in the ego. Uh, you know, you're, you're, one part of you is watching your experience while another part of you is having your experience. And um, that's hard for someone who hasn't meditated to understand. Uh, but once you've tried it for a little bit, it makes total sense, you, you know. Um, so the, the awareness or the mindfulness, which is watching or feeling, I think the watching makes it a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, makes it sound a little bit too distant, uh, but there is an observing quality which is dispassionate in its observation, and that's analogous to the mother who's able to see the child being upset but not overreact, you know, not underreact by ignoring it, but not overreact by getting totally anxious when a child is in distress. Something very similar is happening in the mind of the meditator when you're seeing yourself sitting there, you know, freaking out uh, at having to sit there and full of all kinds of difficult emotional experiences. But uh, because you've been given good meditation instruction in how to be mindful, you're able to sit there with it, uh, noting your reactions, but not acting out 
uh, about your reactions, you know. Very few people, once they learn mindfulness, are uh, getting up and hitting the pillow and, uh, you know, screaming and so on. They're able to sit there on the cushion, even in the midst of very intense emotional experience. But the the observing capacity is um, uh, strengthened by the practice, and that's analogous to bringing back this kind of uh, parental environment that uh, we all need and all actually have still uh, within us. What you're saying reminds me of a quote that appears towards the end of your new book, The Trauma of Everyday Life. And here's the quote, the Buddha's most fundamental discovery was that the human mind is in itself the relational home that is needed to process trauma. Yes, I said it much better in the book. Um, but that, you know, that was all coming out of um, uh, having the sudden realization, even though I already knew it in the back of my mind, that the Buddha's mother had died when he was five days old or seven days old. I can't even remember exactly now. Uh, yeah, a week old, I think. The Buddha's mother passes on. And um, uh no one had ever made very much of that, you know, like why does the why does the Buddha's mother have to die? And I realized that there must be some kind of hidden teaching in that. And so that one of the threads of that book, the trauma of everyday life, is trying to uh, trying to uh, ascertain what the meaning of that might be in our in our uh, uh, psychotherapeutic age, you know. One of the things I thought was curious is that before reading The Trauma of Everyday Life, I didn't know that the Buddha's mother died when he was a week old. I always heard the story, the legend, you know, here's a, a young prince, had everything he wanted, very privileged life, et cetera, et cetera. I never heard the story told. Let's begin. Really? You never knew the story? I never knew it's that. Always, you, you, um, he, goes to the, he goes to heaven. He goes to heaven where his mother is after he's enlightened and teaches her his uh, his psychology, teaches her the Abhidhamma, you know, which is the, uh, the the Buddha's psychology. And then he comes down on a golden ladder with Indra and Brahma on, on either side of him. Um, it's a famous it's a famous part of the teaching. She has a dream of a of a white elephant nuzzling her when she's pregnant, and that that's how she knows that she's. Uh, that she's going to have a baby, and then she has him standing with one arm above, holding on to uh, uh, to the bough of a tree. And then a, uh, a wise man comes and visits the child and says he's either going to be a great king or he's going to be a great spiritual leader, and then she dies. And that's why the father wants to lock him up and keep him safe from ever having seeing death or illness or old age. You know, the father vows to protect him from any further suffering, and he marries the, um, the 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 wife's sister, and they have more children, and so on. It's part of the whole story. I totally believe you, and it. I mean, it shows. My, <laughs> I know you do. Too. My, my no, my my lack of familiarity. But what I thought was interesting was that here it's a Buddhist psychiatrist that really wants to bring out this point and emphasize it and yeah. really look at, well, what might this mean that his mother died seven days after he was born? I mean, this is the first book I read where that became a, a really a central point worth investigating. 
And it makes sense, and you're talking about Winnicott's work and how yeah. important this holding environment is to you and in, in your sense of how people develop that you would really want to dig in on this point. So I guess my question is, having done that, having really put this under a magnifying glass, what does that tell you about the Buddha's life and teaching? What did you come up with looking at this through this psychological lens, as you say? Well, I, I, uh, that that sentence that you quoted already was was pretty much the uh, summation of what I came up with. You know, that um, that there's a a, a hidden psychology uh, lying uh, dormant, you know, just out of view within Buddhism, that in a way was waiting for psychoanalysis to give it language. And now that we have the language of psychoanalysis, we can look back at the Buddha's story and that hidden dimension, you know, which is a, a psychological, relational uh, a dimension that really there wasn't language for in the Buddha's time. It, you know, it's there as a story, but the theory of it is not elaborated. Um, the, we, we now have the language to talk about it. Um, I was I was teaching with uh, Thurman uh, when I first started writing this book, and he quoted uh, from a 18th century Mongolian lama's enlightenment poem, um, and he was making a point about the Buddhist concept of voidness or emptiness. But he quoted this enlightenment poem that began, "I was like a mad child, long lost, my old mother." never could find her though she was with me always and it was it was after hearing that verse that i started thinking about the buddha's mother because i related so immediately to the mongolian lama being like a mad child long lost his old mother even though my, you know my mother is about to turn 90 and i'm close to her but still there was something inside of me you know that was like felt uh, some kind of neglect um and uh, the the second part, you know, never could find her though she was with him always. That's what I was saying in that sentence that you liked, that you quoted, that the relational home that we're seeking is there inside of us all the time. And that's what the Mongolian Lama found, that he was already free, you know, that he thought that the... Uh, that his freedom, that that the uh, concept of emptiness and so on, he thought it was outside of him, and he had to find it elsewhere, but it was already there inside of him. And I think that the Buddha's loss of his mother is, uh, at such an early age is like a template for all of the suffering that that we have endured, that because we're psychologically minded, we look back and say, oh, that that suffering must be there, you know, in my early experience that I can't really remember. There must be some kind of lack there. And we like those stories, and there's truth in those stories, but that may not be the ultimate truth. You know, the ultimate truth may be that part of our incarnation as humans is that there's a felt sense of lack. but And we have something to discover, you know, in ourselves, it, that we need to discover in order to dispel that feeling. And that's what the spiritual search is really all about. Now let's talk a little bit more about this relational home that I can find, that people can find 
in the human mind that's needed to process trauma. So I can imagine someone saying, you know, yeah, when I'm meditating, I find that when I'm dealing with things that are, let's say, on a one to 10, at a three or four or five level of challenge, that's how difficult they are. That's how, you know, challenging it might be. I can create a relationship to a certain amount of physical or emotional pain. But when I'm really upset, there is no relational home. I'm just really upset. Come on. How am I going to do it then? That's the question. Well, I like to say that if we're not suffering from post-traumatic stress, we're suffering from pre-traumatic stress, you know, because the, the uh, potential for trauma is there in all of us always. We're all going to face, you know, difficult feelings and ultimately old age illness and death. And uh, so the, the, um, it's not just in our own individual experience. It's there for everyone. And when, when we're not taking our own uh, suffering so seriously, but can see that, you know, everyone has to deal with that, then it makes it a little uh, easier to tolerate the level of one's own distress. So we're all up against what, what you're talking about, that when it hits us really hard, we lose it. But the, that relational capacity that really is uh, stronger than any pain that we can experience, you know, that can meet it and hold it, the way a mother holds the pain of her baby, that really is there in all of us, and it will get us through everything that we have to go through. Now, I'm sure this is something that you've been questioned on when people have talked to you about your book, The Trauma of Everyday Life, a certain kind of response to the use of this word trauma when you're talking about, you know, there's going to be a trauma today, tomorrow, the next day, we all experience it. And, you know, you could be referring to all kinds of minor traumas, the minor trauma of, uh, you know, putting the envelope, the letter in the wrong envelope, whatever, all kinds of little things, missing breakfast, etc. go on and on. And I'm imagining people who have had major traumas in their life Maybe they've participated in a war or the trauma of sexual abuse being a little bit like, you know, fuck you, Mark, excuse me, but you're using the word trauma to talk about, you know, everyday little things that people experience. You're discounting my intense experience of trauma here. So I'm curious what your response is to that. Um, have you read by any chance the uh, the book that just won the National Book Award um, called... Um uh, Redeployment by Phil Clay. It's a it's a book of stories by an Iraq veteran, uh, and he, uh, it's an amazing book about what what it was like to be uh, uh, you know a soldier and the traumas that that uh, come came with that in Iraq. But he wrote a very good piece, an op-ed piece in the Times, uh, right when that book was coming out, where he talked about how difficult it was to be a soldier coming back uh, to a civilian environment uh, and have people talk to him as if they couldn't relate to the traumas that he had been through uh, in, in Iraq, as if his experience was somehow so far removed from basic human experience that it was, you know, other. 
And um, I, the point that he was making, which is very important for people who have suffered major trauma, is that uh, we all have an understanding of what it is to be traumatized, either because we've experienced major things or even because we've experienced so-called minor things. You know, we all have lost people who we're close to. We all are facing mortality. We all have similar reactions to sensations of, uh, of uh, mortality in that we don't want to look at them or feel them and we jump away to what we hope will be a safe place. But that just isolates us. And what what he, Phil Clay, the returning Iraq veteran, was saying was that when he came back and people were able to talk to him about their traumas, that it helped him talk about his. But if people made it such that his were off the charts, you know, that then he, there was nowhere that he could go with his experience. And that's part of what I mean by the the healing relational environment that's necessary. It's not just within our own minds, it's also with each other. And people, in order to heal from whatever major or minor traumas they've experienced, have to be able to talk to other people uh, who can relate to what they've experienced from their own experience. And that's how trauma is healed. As I'm listening to you talk about the holding environment and this relational home of our own mind and being like a mother with a child when I'm really, really, really upset. What I'm thinking of is how that could really apply in so many situations. I mean, kind of like what you're saying here, meaning just talking to a friend. We're creating a holding environment potentially for their experience just in the way that we're listening. There's just so many yeah. possibilities in how we interact with each other for this. I'm curious what you have to say about that. I mean, I'm starting to see it everywhere, this idea of sort of the mother and child metaphor, if you will, in so many moments throughout the day. Yeah. Well, I, I was talking to my own mother not long ago after my father had died, and I wrote about this a little bit after my book came out. Um, and she was, it was, I think, four years after my father had died, and she was saying that, uh, it, you know, she really ought to be over it now. Uh, she should have worked through the, uh, you know, five stages, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross uh, stages of grief. And she was feeling bad about herself that she was still grieving my father. And my response to my own mother was coming from this place that we're talking about, you know, about self-acceptance and not striving for perfection and not judging one's feelings, but letting them letting them alone. So my, my response was that, you know, grief doesn't have a timetable and uh, it can go on and on. Uh, it might it might ease up, it might lighten a little bit, you know, as as uh, time went on, but there's no timetable for it. And uh, she found that in, incredibly useful and then and then said, you know, thinking about what you're saying, when my first husband died, it took me about 10 years uh, before I wasn't thinking about him all the time. And uh, I, uh, when I was growing up, I hadn't known that she had a first husband. Um, so that was at that level of uh, trying to keep that 
trying to keep that reality away, you know. And I, I didn't discover it until we were playing Scrabble one day and I reached for the dictionary and saw her name uh, written in the front of the dictionary with a different last name, and uh, but it was her handwriting. And uh, it was at that point that she was able to tell me for the first time that she even had uh, that kind of uh, secret in her past. Mm-hmm. Now, Mark, one of the things that you said, just in passing, actually, as part of this conversation, is that you know part of your work has been interpreting Buddhism in psychological language. And mm-hmm. I'm curious to know more about that. Do you find yourself criticized by scholars for doing that? Do you think that that's what's needed in our time is a willingness to do that? How do you see that? Uh, I haven't found myself criticized for it, no. Uh, but I do feel that it's it's one of the opportunities of this you know, particular time and place. Um, I think historically, Buddhism, uh, it's always moved not by force of conquering army, but by the force of its own ideas. And whatever culture it's moved into, it, it's had to adopt the language and the conceptual frame of of that culture. So when it went to China, you know, it took on the, the nature imagery of Taoism. And when it went to Japan, it became another thing, you know. Um, and now that it's come here, the the dominant ideology, you know, at least as far as talking about the mind for the past hundred years, really has come from Freud. Even amongst people who reject Freud and reject psychoanalysis, we're that language of uh, of ego and instinct and uh, and so on is really has permeated it's really uh, it's really in all of us including looking back to childhood experience to um to try to figure out you know what we're made of psychologically so uh, i think that's one of the one of the challenges that buddhism faces in in uh uh, making a home in the West is uh, how is it going to integrate itself uh, into that way of thinking. Um, it's certainly been important for me as I've tried to f- figure out what I understand both of Buddhism and of uh, the psychotherapy world. Uh, a, a lot of my efforts have gone into explaining one in terms of the other. Okay, Mark, just two final questions for you. Here's the first one. You start off the trauma of everyday life by talking about the Buddha as a realist, someone who saw realistically what's happening. And I'm curious to know, what do you think are the most important realist observations, if you will, that many of us in our culture are ignoring or not paying attention to? What's your version of sort of Buddha's reality therapy for today? When we talk about uh, about Buddha as a realist, uh, I think the traditional way of uh, looking at that is that he's pointing to what he called the three marks or the three characteristics of existence, which are you know anicca, anatta, and dukkha. Uh, impermanence is anicca, um, a lack of solidity. Uh, of certainty uh, uh, is anatta, and uh, dukkha is this uh, pervasive sense of unsatisfactoriness, 
that is there even underneath uh, pleasant experience because pleasant experience is itself impermanent. So th that's kind of the the negative way of looking at reality, if you will. You know, it's emphasizing what what we don't have. Uh, the, the kind of permanence and certainty and pleasure and solidity and control that uh, instinctively we desire. Uh, I think the other way that he's a realist, which uh, became stressed m more as Buddhism developed uh, over time into the Mahayana and so on, is that underlying our sense of individuality and subjectivity and personal existential dread, there's a capacity for joy and love and connection that we don't ordinarily cultivate except in our relational lives, you know. So the Buddha as a realist is pointing to those aspects of our experience that are what we remember when we're facing death you know it's the love it's the connection it's the it's the relationality that ultimately we can relax into totally and that that's the deepest reality from the buddha's point of view and finally mark this program that I host. It's called Insights at the Edge. This is our good enough interview on Insights at the Edge. And I'm always curious to know what someone's edge is in their life, kind of your personal growth edge, if you would. What if you told the truth, the thing is that you're really working on inside yourself right now? Well, for, for me, the surprising thing uh, in my life has been uh, uh, in my writing because I never saw myself as a writer. Um, I was happy to be a therapist. That was, that was enough of an achievement, you know. Um, but there was something in me that needed to um, put words on things, in, you know. And so, um, uh, so that continues to be an edge that I push against. You know, there's a big, uh, a, a big thing in me that would rather not be writing uh, because it's difficult. Uh, and then something else that finds it quite gratifying in the aftermath and, and sometimes even in the doing. So uh, having finished that last book, I was happy that that's, that's the, for me, the best part of writing is when something's done. Uh, mm -hmm. So I was happy to be uh, in that phase of things. And now, uh, you know, it's like uh, uh, gotten inside of me a little bit again. So uh, I'm pushing, pushing against that. Well, even if it wasn't how you imagined yourself, I have to say, you are a gosh darn good writer, Mark. You really Thanks, are. Family. I've been talking with Mark Epstein. His latest book is called The Trauma of Everyday Life. And he's also the author of the book Thoughts Without a Thinker and Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart. And with Sounds True, Mark has created an audio program called What the Buddha Felt, a Buddhist Psychiatrist, points the way to uncommon happiness. Mark, 
haven't talked to you in a long time, and I'm just so grateful that we had the chance here on Insights at the Edge. I hope it was good enough. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.